This week on Influence, we're muting the program in order to give ourselves some time to listen and think, research and plan to better support anti-racist work. We're going to hand the show over to Andrew Simon and Brenton Mock. Andrew is the Director of Leadership Programming for GRIST, the publication dedicated to climate, sustainability and social justice. And Brenton Mock is a staff writer for Bloomberg City Lab. He focuses on voting rights, civil rights and environmental justice. Andrew, Brenton, thank you very much. This is Influence, and it's all yours. My name's Andrew Simon, and I'm here with a good friend and a former colleague, Brenton Mock. Just to start with, what what are you just feeling right now, and what has been going through your maybe your mind and your heart over the last few days? Um, I feel familiarity. We've been here before. And not that long ago. And so uh, my heart really aches for a family of uh, George Floyd. I, you know, I, I haven't even watched that whole video. I can't. But from what I watched, it was it was just too much. But uh, before that, you know, we there was Breonna Foster, Christian Cooper. I mean, it, it was just too many, too many tragedies. So, you know, in my lifetime, there's been at least... 10 of these kind of high profile cases in a, in a aftermath that's led to a bunch of devastation in black communities. But, you know, we can't say it wasn't to be expected. And uh, it just, it's, you know, it's even more painful to on top of the families who've lost lives to see uh, that uh, so many people, so many protesters being arrested mainly because Minneapolis failed to arrest four police officers. And what about you? I think on one level, I'm still processing this all. Um, there is something surreal, as you said, about the familiarity with all this. Just thinking about Los Angeles in the 90s, Cincinnati in the early 2000s, Ferguson, so many more examples. Um, and I think I'm just still making sense of it. I honestly haven't even watched the video of George Floyd, I, I haven't been able to to bring myself to watch it, which perhaps makes me a, a bit of a coward, but um, I'm just trying to take things kind of one beat at a time. I think just with coronavirus, there's just been this beat of thinking about, you know, family and community and protecting loved ones. And, and that has taken a lot of energy. <laughs> and I'm thankful to have a job on top of that, but the, the work requires uh, energy as well. So I, I've admittedly haven't mustered up, I think, the energy yet to even watch the video, but I've certainly been uh, reading about all the protests and I'm saddened. You know, I would say I'm still processing and I'm just, I think I'm just sad because it is familiar. In terms of this question of familiarity, I, this is something I want to ask you about. I mean, is there anything now that feels different? I mean, is this, do you feel like this is history repeating itself or is there something that's different about the current moment? Honestly, it, it's like Groundhog Day for me. Like, I, yeah. I don't feel a lot of difference. You know, I remember when Ferguson popped off, and I just remember a lot of people just kind of being bewildered. Like, where's all this rage coming from? Um, and I remember back then being a little bewildered, <laughs> thinking, like, how did you not, you know, see this coming? But 
but now I don't even feel that. It's just like, I mean, you, we've been through Ferguson, we've been through Baltimore, we've been through Chicago. I mean, it's, if you haven't been paying attention. Yeah. And Brenton, you know, just in your work uh, as a reporter, as a journalist, you've, you've covered not only Ferguson and unrest in the past, you've covered police brutality specifically, but you've also, you know, covered, um, the broader systems that, uh, really continue to uh, make things works for marginalized people. So I'm even just wondering, you know, even let's just take it over the last like five or six years and maybe, you know, starting with Ferguson. I mean, can you point to any systemic change? Uh, I mean, policy wise, I think it was somewhat advantageous that uh, when Ferguson and and Baltimore, um, when those things happened, the Obama administration was responsive across the spectrum, they had some strong responses such as um, installing consent decrees in the in the uh, police departments in Ferguson and Baltimore um, in Chicago and a bunch of other cities that basically compelled police departments to kind of change the way that they did their police activities, especially as far as African Americans were concerned. In either event, when Trump came into the White House, he You know, as you may know, he undid a lot of the consent decrees and said that they weren't going to enforce them and they weren't going to do anymore. And I think that, you know, we're kind of feeling the pain of of the undoing of that right now. But I will say I should have um, shouldn't have left this out in terms of difference. This isn't necessarily a systemic change, but I will say that environmental organizations, particularly the, the white ones, the mainstream ones, they have really stepped up. Like, surprisingly, you know, like I remember in 2015 when I was writing about Ferguson for Grist. I mean, you can go back to those articles now and like look through the comments and see people saying like, well, this is an environmental website. Like, why are we talking about police brutality and racism and stuff like that? And I think if you go to Grist now and you don't have to go to Grist now, you can go to the environmental organizations themselves. They've been putting out some really powerful statements, you know. The Audubon Society put out a really powerful statement when Christian Cooper had his face off with Amy Cooper in Central Park in Manhattan and the Audubon Society. Right. I mean, like you would expect like the Sierra Club or uh, Earth Justice or Greenpeace. Um, but the Audubon Society, you know, these are bird watchers, you know, <laughs> and they're putting out strong statements on racism and protecting black men in parks. I mean, that's that, that's, you know. That's really profound, especially when you consider that a lot of those kind of larger green mainstream organizations um, have a lot of uh, pull and influence with policymakers. I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, you have covered Ferguson through that lens of environment, like you said, and I, I believe you had a piece in 2014 that had, you know, walking while black in the headline. You've written about Christian Cooper recently. And I'm just wondering for, you know, for the listeners who, you know, maybe aren't aware of that connection between the outdoors, race, equity, access. I'm wondering if you can maybe connect those dots for some people. I think that, uh, you know, whether we're talking about Christian Cooper having his life threatened um, by a white woman in uh, what essentially was a bird habitat in Central Park or... George Floyd being choked out in the middle of a street in Minneapolis, what we're talking about is um, like public space, right? Open space. And 
people's right to be able to enjoy themselves and live freely in these spaces, to not be killed in these places, to not be harassed, not be discriminated against. You know, it must be a real luxury and joy to be able to, to just for, you know, white people to just walk around and look at birds, you know, and um, look at flowers and plants and plant trees and stuff without ever having to worry about like someone calling the police on them because they feel like, you know, they're doing something suspicious, you know, but that's something that African-Americans can like really never shake off. Right. Like they, they can't just kind of enjoy free space, open space, park space, green space, whatever space, you know, like they can't enjoy it. Because they know that someone is going to be looking at them through the lens of suspicion. Yeah. You know, just having an African-American come into that space and then have people wonder, well, what is this person doing here? What is this black person doing here? Must be up to no good. There must be something going on. You know, that's life threatening. The Christian Cooper, Amy Cooper thing is interesting because I think people didn't take seriously that connection between racism and public space. Right. Black people, if a person ever said like, oh, I don't like doing that because I don't like how white people look at me or I don't want someone calling the police on me, somebody would probably laugh them off like, ah, you're being dramatic, you know. But the Christian Cooper, Amy Cooper thing, I mean, that blew that out the gate, right? That was a real kind of like transparently just completely racist way of dealing with who was allowed to be in this space, um, who was allowed to follow the rules of the park. Right. Amy Cooper was breaking rules by not having her dog leash. Christian Cooper was trying to defend birds, telling her you must leash leash your dog. But because of that sense of white privilege and entitlement, that led to a completely racist incident that didn't need to happen. And it could have ended if the police had come, you know, with uh, Christian Cooper ending up, unfortunately, the same way that, that George Floyd's life ended tragically. And I can't help but think of really the tragic irony of the current moment where people are stuck indoors. People want to get outside. People need to get outside, breathe fresh air, see something green, look at animals, find some kind of peace with that. So that's just one thing that has really lingered with me when it comes to the Christian Cooper story in particular. And like you're you're talking about, Brenton, this um, this racism that, that we experience in the outdoors as people of color, because as far as I can remember my lifetime, this is probably one of the most critical times for people to be able to have access to the outdoors as a way to stay healthy, both mentally and physically. Yeah, and then, and, and then you add to the mix the fact that we're all wearing masks, right? Like, you know, like when in U.S. history has it been cool or cute or safe for black people to walk around with masks on without them definitely being viewed under the lens of suspicion and mm. criminality? You know, it was, you know, the great social critic and poet Greg Moten. I mean, he, he calls it fugitivity, right? This Fugitivity is the condition under which African-Americans live, um, dating back to the Fugitive Slave Act, where just your existence, you know, in America put you outside the lines of the law. If you were black during slavery, but you were free, let's say you lived in a free state, but you were black, under the Fugitive Slave Act, it didn't matter that you were free, right? Because you were black. So if a white person identified you in the street in Philadelphia or New York City, they said, oh, he's black. He must be an escaped slave. 
we need to bring him back down south under the Fugitive Slave Act. That level of fugitivity in a lot of ways has not left us. So even when we're outside, if we're in a park space or or anywhere like that, Mm. any kind of public space where we're under the lens or the gaze of, you know, of white people or any, it's not even really just white people because of the internalized racism that exists in African-Americans and Asian-Americans and Latino-Americans. Sometimes it it can be anybody who views certain black people under the under this lens of criminality and fugitivity. So, I mean, this is the complexity of, wh- of what it means to exist and live in, in the U.S. if you're black. Just to spin the conversation forward a little bit, I'm just wondering, what are the efforts that are happening that are on the ground, community-oriented, grassroots, where some of the work is actually happening to correct some of the ills that people are protesting, but maybe there's just not an awareness of such efforts? The social justice, environmental justice, um, racial justice world is is vast. Um, you have to look at like what what these organizations are up against, right? Um, you know, grassroots organizations are fighting for these policy victories to bring better laws and policies into place, so that Black people and Latino people, um, vulnerable populations, can live and live freely. But they're up against such mega, like, political corporate forces who just really don't care. It's really hard to make a dent, right? And every time that there is some kind of progress that's made, there's always this backlash. And that's what we're, we're living in right now, like, is this, this, this period of backlash um, from all of the progress that was made under the Obama administration. I think we've seen a huge explosion in awareness and activism around environmental justice, if we could just take that one issue, right? In the beginning of the Obama administration, you had some really great organizations that were holding it down on the environmental justice front. You know, you had We Act um, in New York, in the New York City Environmental Justice Alliance. You had uh, Tejas in, in Texas. You know, you had Dr. Beverly Wright Deep South Environmental Justice Network in New Orleans. Um, you know, I can go on and on. But these were like organizations that had been holding it down since like the 80s, right? And with no funding, um, with no resources, and just kind of steadily just kind of piercing away. And then by the end of the Obama administration and more into the Trump administration, it's like now everybody's talking about environmental justice, right? And like now all this money is being thrown around and you have Congress members, um, you know, environmental justice is being talked about at the highest level, you know, whether it's, you know, someone like AOC or someone like Bernie Sanders. You can't even get on the Democratic presidential platform unless you're talking about environmental justice. Right. It's not just the grassroots organizations anymore. Now it's the Sunrise Movement and it's exploded. This is what we wanted. Right. Like we wanted there to be like this growth and awareness and, and people to speak directly to the power on this. Environmental justice awareness and activism has grown exponentially and people are making the connections between environmental justice and police brutality and housing justice and transit justice and economic justice, you know, for people of color. But what we're seeing is this huge backlash, again, from the enforcers of white supremacy Uh, from the people at a corporate level who just, again, 
they trying to protect profits by any means necessary. And so we kind of see like what the what the blowback looks like. And it's tough, you know, right now people on the ground are fighting what, like three different pandemics right now? Yeah. I mean, yeah. coronavirus, police violence, racism. I mean, it's yes. people are getting pummeled, you know? Like, it's feeling like the end of Avengers Endgame, you know? And it's like, you can't help but feel like that by the end of this, like, half of us are just going to, like, blow away like dust, or, you know? Because, I mean, it's just, we're up against such mighty forces. Um, so we already know that it's not a matter of just kind of like throwing money at the situation, right? And it's not even just a matter of just like making everybody aware. It's really having to deal with the full force of racism. Like having to, having white people like really confront and face and deal with the racism that is perpetuated at every level of power in America. I had a question here about allyship. I mean... In this moment, what's helpful from allies or, or for those who want to be allies? That's the part A part, part P part. What is not helpful? But let's start as what is helpful when it comes to those who are allies, consider themselves allies, or who want to be allies in the current moment? I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, so I'm a little, um, the ally language is a little foreign to me. I don't know what makes a good ally. And that, that could be because I'm just a journalist, right? I mean, I'm, I'm not an actual activist. But, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I hope that's a good answer. But And I, I say it because, like, I get this question a lot. You know, how can a white person be a better ally? I mean, like, I don't know. I mean, like, what what is the threshold that we're talking about? You know, is it like Joe Biden, like, caping for Obama? Or are we talking about, like, John Brown, like, back in the slavery time, like, going all in with Nat Turner, like, cutting white people's heads off. I mean, like, what, I, there's so many levels of allyship, um, and I don't know what's required in this moment. I mean, racism is just such a, it's just such a brutal force, you know? I could, I could sit here and say, um, I often hear about, like, Thanksgiving. Like, when Thanksgiving comes around, all of my white friends talk about like how controversial it's going to be at Thanksgiving dinner because they have their Republican and Trump loving uncles and aunts and da, da 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 da. I don't have none of that. I don't know personally anybody in my family or friends like who supports Trump or who's a Republican. So Thanksgiving is never stressful for me. But I always hear this from other white people about how like, oh my God, Thanksgiving, I got to deal with my racist uncle. And I'm like, <laughs> I, I don't even know what you're talking about. But if we want to talk about like what, so I mean, one answer I can say for allyship is like, yo, if you got racist people in your family, like, like divorce those people. You know what I mean? Like, like just get rid of them. You know, that's radical, right? I'm gonna tell you, like, oh, you got a racist uncle, just like don't fucking talk to him anymore. You know, like just cut him off. But who am I to tell somebody like cut their uncle off? You know, racism is in the bloodlines of these people, right? You, it's not easily severable when it's when it's that close to you. And so unless like people are like willing to go into civil war with their own families, which I don't even know if it's in my right to like tell people to do, I will ask somebody to do that, you know, but like that's not an easy thing, right? <laughs> you know, people have like real have real connections with their family members outside of this conversation around racism because these are the people who raised them, right? So if you're willing to go up to the person who raised you, and say, I just can't even deal with you anymore unless you get rid of this racism. 
you know, I feel like that's the kind of level that maybe we should be talking about, but I just don't know how you even like talk about it. One thing I want to ask you, Brenton, is who are some of the voices right now that are getting you through this moment in time? Voices that might be that others might just want to know about, want to read about, listen to themselves. Yeah, um, Nicole Hannah-Jones, I mean, we have to say that off the top. Nicole is a, is a great friend, but she's doing phenomenal, phenomenal work raising awareness around segregation and how deeply rooted it is, not just in uh, our neighborhoods and society, but in our families. You know, she talks a lot about family. And I love any writer who brings it down to the family level because because that, you know, that's the intimate connection. That's where the rubber hits the road. You know, we can we can talk in these kind of like large platitudes about like what's going on with society. But but we got to talk about like what's happening in our families. Right. Um, Talia Buford um, doing absolutely great work, as always, on the environmental justice front. There's a great reporter out of Memphis named Wendy Thomas who basically has created her own journalist infrastructure in Memphis. She runs MLK50.com, does phenomenal reporting. Roxanne Gay, who's who's just a phenomenal writer um, and just love to soak up everything that, that, that she writes. Brittany Cooper. I mean, she, Brittany Cooper is, is phenomenal. Latoya Peterson has always been phenomenal. My big bro, Kaye Say Lehman, who always lays it out. Other than that, I'm reading children's books, man. I have a baby. So, <laughs> like, not, you know, and that, that, that's my escapism, man. I, I read, like, ABC ABC books and watch Akili and me and stuff like that, you know. Um, what about you? Who are you reading? Well, I just recently read Between the World and Me for the first time by ta Coates. Which oh yeah, how could I leave Tanahasi out? Yeah, yeah, and I was late to that. Um, but what's amazing to me is every word of that rings true. So right now, this whole notion of the lack of value put on the black body, and what his son and so many other black people have to live with when it comes to fear and recognizing that your body isn't valued. So every word of that just rang and still rings so true to me. So I'm doing that, but I'm also, as a break, reading fantasy. I mean, I'm also reading N.K. Jemison because that's just escape from this current moment right now, you know? (laughs) But sometimes even a fucked up fantasy world still provides a level of an escape from this real world, uh, which is pretty grim right now, too. No, yeah, for real. Watching old Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood because I'm bringing my baby in. I mean, like, that stuff is needed right now. To just, like, teach us how to deal with, like, emotions like anger, you know, and and fear and insecurity. You know, we talk about, as a black person, like, walking around being viewed under the lens of suspicion. And, I mean, that's terrible, right, to have to live under that condition. But we kind of, as African-Americans, we also have to find a way to, what do we do with those emotions, right? Like, you want to lash out, and maybe lashing out in certain situations is the appropriate thing. But that's not always a healthy thing to do for ourselves internally. So what do we do? Like, what do we do with that wrath that we feel when we're so angry? that we can't walk around freely. We have to be able to channel that productively somehow. 
And I think that, you know, returning back, I, I mean, I, I'm sounding like a real corny dad, but like returning back to like some of those like old school, like children's programming, like Sesame Street, you know, they kind of like really help you like remember how to sort out those feelings. Right. Um, and my guy Carvel Wallace, I mean, he has a he has a excellent podcast on uh, on Mister Rogers um, and and just kind of like learning what it means to to deal with the kinds of uh, things that Mister Rogers was trying to impress upon children, but not just upon children, but like society at large. I mean, that, that, he's definitely somebody I've been reading and listening to a lot. Brenton, is there anything that's giving you hope right now? And I asked that question. No, uh, I asked that. I, I, I know. I know. I know. Hope. That's the tricky question. I know. <laughs> I know. This is another one's question. You're like you get asked all the time, and it's hard. It's hard to answer. But I, I would say, take, I'm doing my best, man. I, I brought up Mr. Rogers and Sesame Street, man. He, but you, you push him. Yeah. Any direction you want with that? What's giving you hope right now? Um. All right. I've been practicing not being cynical about this question. It is because it, it's the other question. Um, that I'm asked all the time. But the one question, what can white people do to be better allies? And the second, what what makes you hopeful? Um, I'm trying not to be cynical. But look, what gives me hope is, I mean, not only do I feel like I have to return back to the programming of my childhood, but I also have to return back to the values of my grandmother. You know, my grandmother, who's a deeply religious Baptist woman, and I know it's like corny to talk about religion and and all of that but you know religion aside like what she instilled in me makes me hopeful um the gospel hymns that she sang and and hummed around the house which were the same gospel songs and hymns you know that the slaves themselves sung it and uh, hummed to keep themselves hopeful i mean if it was good enough for the slaves and it's good enough for me you know those are the kinds of things that that keep me hopeful um, and of course, my uh, my son, I have a baby boy, he's a year old, and I have a teenage son. And they both make me extremely hopeful and also extremely freaking terrified, like, at the same time, simultaneously. But, you know, I just feel like if I can kind of hold on to the hope in there, that kind of helps me, you know, cope with the, <laughs> the terrified feeling that I'm feeling as well. Well, I appreciate that. And... I, I wish I wish for your sons and the sons of so many others a brighter future than what we have right now because it's pretty scary, but you coming on this podcast and knowing that you're a father, knowing that you have all this knowledge to impart to them and others, uh, that's giving me hope. So um, thank you so much, Brenton, for, for taking thank the time you. to be here. Hope you all enjoyed this conversation. Andrew and Brenton, Thank you very much for sharing so much with us during such a hard week. We will include uh, links to both Andrew and Brenton's work in our show notes, as well as other writers' books and resources mentioned on the show. You can follow Andrew on Twitter at Andrew25Simon and Brenton on Twitter at BrentonMock. That's B-R-E-N-T-I-N-M-O-C-K at BrentonMock. This special episode was produced by Elise Hugh and Rachel Swaby. Influence is a podcast from WeTransfer produced in association with Reasonable Volume. Thank you very much for listening.